0: You're listening to Fit in Focus, a podcast from Fitbit where we talk about all things health and wellness, from the science and business of health to what motivates people on their own health journey. Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Fit in Focus. I'm Eric Friedman, and I'm here with my co-host, Andrew Holing. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Connor Hennigan, Director of Research Algorithms here at Fitbit. Connor's work at Fitbit spans many areas from sleep, to heart health, to stress. But today we're focusing on the recent work he and the team did around COVID-19.
1: Connor and his team launched the Fitbit COVID-19 study, which looked at the potential for Fitbit to build an algorithm to detect COVID-19 before symptoms start. Over 130,000 Fitbit users enrolled in the study, an incredible response. Today we'll talk about what the team learned and what's next for this research.
0: Connor, welcome to Fit and Focus. I want to start off a little bit about your background. Uh, Tell us a little bit how you got to Fitbit and what you did before.
2: Sure. Uh, So as you might pick up from my accents during the talk, I'm originally from Ireland. Uh, So I studied engineering originally at University College Dublin and uh, studied electronic engineering and got very interested in biomedical applications of engineering. So that led me to take up the chance to study uh, for a PhD at Columbia University in New York. And I went over there to study electrical engineering, but with a focus on biomedical applications. So I ended up doing five years there in New York, looking at signals from uh, hair cells in the ears of guinea pigs, and also looking at nerve spike trains that were recorded from electrocardiograms and also looking at some more theoretical properties of what are called power law signals so our fractal signals and that was my formal training and along the way got involved with some analysis of signals for detection of sleep apnea Uh, it was actually set up as a competition at a conference and myself and a colleague worked on seeing if you could recognize a person with sleep apnea, which is this disease where you stop breathing at night. And if you could recognize that just by looking at a person's heartbeat patterns. And that actually was the the top entry in the competition. And we were pretty excited about that and decided between the two of us that we would um, file a patent with the university and also see if we could commercialize it by licensing to other people. And that actually led me to start up a company with uh, a third colleague who is uh, an MBA uh, experienced uh, sort of new technology person. And together we launched a company in 2001 to basically look at sleep patterns, look at sleep apnea, look at breathing patterns. We did uh, have a lot of success with that company in terms of, Developing some really interesting technology to measure sleep patterns, both from electrocardiograms initially, and then later on from uh, respiration sensors. So that got me interested in the field of sleep and sleep tracking, where I have spent uh, you know, several years developing new technologies, getting to know the field, talking to a lot of clinicians. And uh, eventually that led in, I think it was 2011, uh, to the company being acquired by a medical device company called ResMed, who developed technologies for sleep apnea treatment and also are very interested in sleep awareness and consumer sleep technology. Uh, So that got me more and more into the field where sort of biomedical engineering meets consumer electronics. Uh, So with with ResMed, we were able to do a, a very interesting consumer sleep tracking device. Uh, but I was really interested in pushing further into that domain. So that's when I took the opportunity to join Fitbit uh, in 2015. Yep. I guess for me, the excitement of uh, what I enjoyed a lot with the product we did with ResMed is to actually get a product out that consumers could use. Uh, the downside of working with ResMed uh, was it's primarily a medical devices company. So consumer-facing devices were not really their strong spot. So we didn't really have the i say the channel to get to consumers or the brand, as much as a company like Fitbit where, you know, it's all about basically trying to help people directly in the consumer space with their health. So that was for me was the big uh, attraction of coming to join Fitbit.
0: And so over the last five years of Fitbit, uh, tell us a about some of the features you've, you've shipped you've shipped a whole bunch of sleep related stuff.
2: When I write a Fitbit, uh, it was great. One of the reasons I was excited to join was, there was obviously a lot of interest and passion about adding sleep tracking uh, or improving it uh, for consumers. So there was already an existing sleep tracking capability that gave people feedback on wh- whether they're awake or asleep. And basically when I worked with, with Shelton, uh, who was, as you know, was the, uh, the VP of research at that point, uh, Shelton kind of gave me a very broad roadmap to say, can you can you help develop the sleep tracking roadmap so we have a a more rich experience for the consumer, something that's maybe closer to what a sleep lab could give you, uh, that you know is as accurate as possible. So basically, for the first kind of year and a half with Fitbit, we did the basic research into developing a machine learning algorithm that would map the signals that you can uh, acquire from a Fitbit uh to the signals that are measured in a sleep lab to do with your deep sleep rem sleep light sleep and so on uh so that was that was a I ended up eventually in 2017 we were able to launch that feature to consumers and i think it remains one of the most popular aspects of the the fitbit experience as people being able to look at their sleep patterns and break it down into the different stages of sleep and also uh at the same time, we began work on the concept of a sleep score, which would give people the concept of the quality of their sleep. Um, and that was kind of something we layered on once we developed the basic sleep stages functionality. So th- those are a couple of
0: the areas in sleep that I've worked in. You mentioned Fitbit's been doing sleep for a very long time. Yeah, you know, we, we, when we first launched 13 years ago. We had sleep as a fundamental thing. You kind of really helped us revolutionize by um, adding in that sleep stages and sleep score, which is all heart rate variability-based, HRV-based. First, tell us a tiny bit about HRV, um, and also that, that kind of then goes into, like, why is HRV give us such insight to the body, whether it both be sleep and heart health? And we're going to talk about it some more with, like, how it helps with other disease detection. Sure. So
2: just to cover the basics, so the heart rate variability is basically looking at the time between each individual heartbeat and looking at how that varies as a function of of time. So for example, if your heartbeat is about 60 beats per minute, you would expect that you'll get a heartbeat about every second. So your sequence of times will be one second, one second, one second. Now, if a human was a robot, it would be exactly one second every time. Uh, But in the real world of a biological system, you get a sequence like 1.1 seconds, 0.9 seconds, 1.2 seconds. So there's a natural variation. And that natural variation, we can quantify statistically. Uh, So we can look at whether there's a short-term variation between beats that are next to one another. We can also look over 24 hours to see are there long-term fluctuations. Do you have like a higher heart rate at night or a lower heart rate at night compared to daytime? So you can look at heart rate variation or variability over many timescales. And the reason that's really useful is because your heart rate, your heart is not uh, not a piece of, of machinery. It's actually being directly controlled by your autonomic nervous system. And the autonomic nervous system is kind of the, the plumbing of our body that keeps us, keeps us alive and regulates all the various processes in our body. Uh, so the autonomic nervous system has the ability to either speed things up or slow things down. So the heart rate is, is influenced by what's called the parasympathetic system, which tries to slow things down and keep things nice and regular. But it's also influenced by the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response, where you can get your heart rate to go higher in order to produce more activity, to produce more energy and so on. And your heart rate is not the only thing that's controlled by the autonomic nervous system. It's also controlling your uh, digestion. It's it's influenced by your circadian rhythm when you sleep and when you're awake. It's controlled by how hot you are, how cold you are. Uh, It has variations within the day. It's influenced by your mood. So what we have then by looking at heart rate variability is actually this incredibly rich window into what's going on in your body underlying not just your heart rate, but other aspects of your body. So that's what we've tried to delve into uh, with with our heart rate variability metrics that we've used, for example, in sleep stages. It's what we look at for the atrial fibrillation, cardiac arrhythmia detection, but also, uh, as you can imagine, uh, there are other diseases or other conditions where heart rate variability can tell us information. So, for example, circadian rhythm can be picked up by changes in your, your heart rate variability. Uh, we haven't done this directly in Fitbit, but um, in my research work at university, we looked at heart failure, which is a particular condition of the heart, and how it changes your heart rate variability and reduces your heart rate variability. So. Uh, we think there's a, a huge amount of insight and knowledge that we can bring to consumers by looking at heart rate variability.
1: On our, um, how I know with resting heart rate, for example, we know that a lower resting heart rate is a better indicator of health. For heart rate variability, do you want more variability or less? Is there some sort of kind of standard of understanding what indicates a, a healthy system with that?
2: Yeah, so the evidence is very much that having a high amount of heart rate variability is a sign of good health, mm. uh, which is kind of a, kind of the opposite to what I would have thought when yeah. I first got in the field. <laughs> uh, I think we all have this model of the, of the heart as being this uh, clockwork machine. Uh, but in reality, the fact that it can change and is variable, it kind of makes sense when you think about it, that your body has to deal with so many different conditions. You know, the, the room temperature changes... You might need more oxygen because you're running, you, you, know, you might need to move blood to your digestive system because you've just eaten. So the fact that your heart rate can vary and can deal with all these changing conditions actually is a sign of good health.
1: HRV is also one of the inputs that Fitbit looked at in its recent COVID-19 study. Before we get into the details and the findings of the study itself, first tell us a bit about it and why we launched it here at Fitbit.
2: Sure, so, uh, Even before the arrival of COVID, uh, we certainly had a lot of anecdotal evidence that people noticed that when they were getting sick, they would see changes in their heart rate. Uh, So for example, your resting heart rate often goes up when you have a fever. So we'd seen this internally in the research team and working with our teams in Fitbit and also hearing from customers. And We actually partnered a couple of years ago with the Scripps Translational Research Institute. Uh, who were very interested in looking at the instance of flu in the United States, and how it varied with region and how it kind of uh, had its little localized spikes in different uh, states. Um, we worked together with them to show that, in fact, at a population level, you could see how flu was spreading by the fact that at a population level, there was more people with elevated heart rates. So this kind of confirmed at a large scale that diseases that are infectious diseases, even like flu can be shown up pretty easy by looking at heart rate. And, and that kind of gave us the preamble that when COVID broke out, uh, we realised that you know, we, we're a very, very useful indicator of health on your wrist, a very low barrier to entry. You don't have to go to a doctor's office to, to wear it. Uh, so we started looking at issues like breathing rate, heart rate, heart rate variability in conjunction with COVID. And Initially, we got a couple of anecdotal cases, uh, which where we showed uh, increases in respiration rate, we showed changes in heart rate. Uh, But in order to really come up with a robust system, we realized we needed a much larger set of data to first train on and then also to validate on. So we launched a survey to Fitbit users in the US and Canada to basically ask them if they had experienced COVID themselves or if they'd ever had a test for COVID and if so, if they would, were willing to give us some information about how long they had the disease, what symptoms they had, and also give us access to look at the raw data in a de-identified fashion to basically decide if there was physiological changes associated with the COVID symptoms. and. Uh, As a result of that survey, we had a a terrific response from the Fitbit user base. We had over 130,000 people participating so far. Um, A lot of people fortunately didn't have COVID, but we did end up with over uh, 1,100 people who had experienced COVID. And using that, we were able to go in and confirm what types of physiological signs change when you experience COVID.
1: Let's dive in a bit more around what was actually measured in the study. So tell me a bit more about the the different metrics that you looked at and the the changes that you saw in those metrics related to the positive COVID cases.
2: So uh, we looked at four different metrics. So we looked at a person's average breathing rate during the night, their average heart rate during the night, and two different measurements of their heart rate variability. which are rather technical, but one is called the Root Mean Square of Successive Differences, which basically looks at short term changes in your heart rate. And we also looked at something called your heart rate variability entropy, which is basically how random it is on a lot of different timescales. Some of the things we saw was that when people were getting sick, their average breathing rate, which would normally be about 15 breaths a minute per night, and which wouldn't change much when you're healthy, we actually saw significant increases. So you might see your breathing rate go up to maybe 16 or 17 breaths per minute over the whole night. And that's like a significant increase in the context of breathing. Mm -hmm. The, The second thing we saw is we saw an increase in your heart rate during the night. And that could be of the order of five to 10 beats per minute. And we actually went back and started looking at some pretty old scientific papers. And actually people had realized a long time ago that when you have a fever, it can actually increase, even one degree centigrade of fever will increase your heart rate by about eight breaths per minute. So we think that for some people, they are experiencing fever with COVID and that's driving the heart rate change. Then the other two metrics, which are the heart rate variability, that relates back to our earlier discussion where we said when your body is healthy, it tends to have a very high degree of variability uh, because it's able to cope with all different circumstances. When you're sick with COVID or with flu, your heart rate variability actually decreases, both at the short timescales that we can see with the RMSSD and also at the longer time scales that the entropy measure can, can look at. So those are the, the findings we, we, uh, we were able to observe. And from an algorithm point of view, we put all four of those different metrics together in a, basically in a formula, where it, it puts out a single number summarizing the night, and we would then compare that number with the person's baseline. Uh, so one of the things we, in developing an algorithm is we have to realize everybody's difference. So one person's basic heart rate might be 60 beats per minute. Another person's heart rate might be 70 beats per minute. So we have to normalize all of these numbers to the person's natural baseline. And then we basically look for the deviations from that baseline over the last few days. And if there's a significant deviation, that's... Typically, can be associated with with getting ill.
0: So, so Connor, for, first of all, you, you mentioned uh, kind of the, the number of people who volunteered. I, I will say it's to me it's overwhelming to think about that 130 thousand Fitbit users said I want to volunteer and help forward the science, and it's something that I'm really grateful to our user base for, and it's something I'm really proud of, uh, of this company for, for, for doing. Um, you, you, first of all, you mentioned kind of the the, we're we're going to the kind of the actual detection of the disease we also got some interesting insights along the way as to kind of symptoms like you know i the first thing whenever i walk someplace the the first thing they do is they take your temperature uh i was kind of surprised in our study actually temperature was not a leading uh indicator uh, of covid as a symptom uh talk about what we, we we saw there
2: yeah so as part of the survey we asked people to report on their symptoms uh, so, firstly, one of the interesting things is about eleven percent of the respondents who did test positive for COVID turned out to have no symptoms. So, I think a lot of us have interest in how many people are asymptomatic. So, at the very least, at least eleven percent of people uh, are asymptomatic, and we were are pretty sure that's a very low bound because to to kind of enter into the survey, you probably would have had to be thinking about about uh, COVID anyway. Uh, and then we also got a feedback on how symptoms were spread across people with the disease. Um, as Eric mentioned, fever turned out to be uh, not super common. It was around about 55% of respondents who mentioned fever as a symptom of the disease. Uh, so yeah, it's not, it's not certain that having COVID will necessarily cause you to run at high temperature. Uh, what we did see as a general, more general symptom that was very common the most common symptom was fatigue um which is makes sense it was obviously also very non-specific and we also saw quite a uh high instance i think of headache um and then there's a couple of the more let's say uh, unusual symptoms you might have read about in the press so things like people having uh pain, uh, swelling in their toes or fingers. If I remember correctly, I think that was about 5% of people who reported that symptom. And I guess the other thing which I personally found pretty unusual about COVID is the people reporting this very strange um, change in their smell and taste sensation. And that was indeed pretty common. I think that was around about 60% of the people experienced a, a decrease in their taste or smell sensation. Uh, so yeah, that was, that was pretty fascinating um i guess some of the other things that we thought were very important out of the study is uh, shortness of breath uh was reported by about 45 percent of people but the shortness of breath uh was quite a strong predictor of whether a person would have a severe case of COVID 19. so for the people who uh, had to be either hospitalized or even worse to be ventil- ventilated they had a much higher reporting of shortness of breath. And that kind of makes sense that, you know, if the disease is sufficiently severe that you're beginning to notice it's affecting your lungs, then it, it probably is indeed a, a pretty bad case. So that's a little bit of what we learned from the survey of
0: symptoms. Yeah, I find it really interesting that, you know, loss of taste or smell is actually higher than, uh, than fever, considering the, the fact that that's the first thing everyone asks these days. So you, you talked a lot about these uh, physiological measurements and before we were talking about the symptoms um when did when did we start seeing those physiological signals Relative to when people report first observing symptoms like that there's something on, going on in their body
2: yeah so the way we approach this is we ask people to tell us the dates on which they had symptoms and from a, from a numerical point of view we would call day zero be the day on which a first symptom appeared and we then looked at our of our overall metric of whether a person is sick or not. I mean you know we wanted to see would it go above the baseline level on day zero and day one and day two. Uh, What we found which is pretty interesting is that on the average we actually saw signs of this metric increasing several days before a person was aware of symptoms. Uh, So even on day minus two relative symptoms on a population level you see a pretty clear signal that something is happening. So uh, you know, the person's heart rate is changing slightly, their breathing rate is changing slightly. And in some cases, people just aren't aware of that. And even though the infection was already beginning to take hold in their body. So that's part of the reason we're really excited about this work, is that not only is it something that could be kind of a retrospective view of what's happening in your body, but it could potentially give you maybe one or two days warning. Um, and you could use that extra day warning to either, you know, stay at home if you have that option, or potentially as testing becomes easier, uh, potentially you could get a test uh, a couple of days earlier than you would have otherwise. Uh, so that's kind of the, the hope for us with this algorithm, is to be able to to bring it to the point where consumers could use it potentially as part of their uh, way of dealing with, with the COVID-19 pandemic
0: we can actually detect COVID a day or day before symptom onset for 50% of users with 70% specificity. Uh, What does that mean? Break down each of those terms. I mean, this is really
2: important to understand is, you know, no test is perfect. Uh, So basically when doctors or public health experts are talking about tests, they have a concept of sensitivity and specificity. So what sensitivity means is how many people who are sick do you actually detect? So, if there, if you have a clinic full of one hundred people and you apply a test, and you correctly find that ninety of them are labelled as being sick, and the other ten you incorrectly label as being healthy, then your sensitivity is ninety over one hundred, or ninety percent. Uh, so, obviously, you want to have as high a sensitivity as possible. And then, conversely, specificity is the same type of. Task, but applied to recognizing healthy people. So again, if you're in a clinic with 100 people in your waiting room and they're all healthy, and you test them all and you say that let's say 95% of them are healthy, but 5% of them you you tell them they're sick incorrectly, then the 95 out of 100 is your specificity. That's 95%. So that the perfect test would be 100% sensitive and 100% specific. So everybody who's sick gets recognized. And everybody who's healthy gets recognised. Uh, none, uh, I'm not aware of any medical test that's absolutely perfect. Uh, to give some context, I think PCR testing, which is the nasal swab testing for COVID, if you if you test yourself on, let's say, the first day after you get symptoms, I think the real world sensitivity is only about seventy percent. So that means there are people who are sick that the test will miss, and that's a combination of limitations in the PCR technology, but probably more commonly, it's the limitation in getting a good sample of tissue or of um, using the nasal swab correctly. So that's kind of the sensitivity you might expect from a a PCR test in some cases. Uh, The good thing about that PCR test is its specificity is is pretty high. I think it's up in the high 98% plus. Uh, So what we're interested in is trying to get an algorithm which is sensitive and specific um, and as Eric said, right now, we could we could select a version of our algorithm which has a particular sensitivity at a certain day and a particular specificity. So for example, if we apply our test on day zero, which is when a person is just about to experience symptoms, we, we think our sensitivity will be about 50%. So we pick up half of the people at that point with a specificity of about 95%. So Healthy people, ninety-five percent then we will tell them they're healthy, uh, and that's going to be a—it's a, a really difficult trade-off because obviously we don't want to tell people who are who are healthy that they are sick, um, but we have to consider the, the the actual cost. So that that makes it very uh, situation-specific. So, if, for example, you're a person who has the ability to work from home and doesn't have to go out, then uh, we could potentially be okay with getting some false positives. In other words, telling people they're sick when they're not, since the worst case scenario for them is they just stay at home as as normal, so they're not incurring any extra risk. Um, Conversely, there might be situations where we need a very high specificity. So for example, if you're uh, an essential worker, uh, maybe a frontline healthcare worker, and it's important for you to get to work, in that case, perhaps the specificity becomes the more important factor.
0: Yeah, it's always fascinating to me, like that intersection between kind of science and philosophy, like the morality of what's right and how in some ways you might need to craft different algorithms based on what people need. Uh, Yes, you you mentioned that sensitivity and specificity, you know, we actually detect a day before symptoms occur, and potentially get you to start isolating. But you're right, there, there are reasons that that might not be the right thing for study. And there are reasons that if we're all trying to social distance, that that might be that one person is contagious, or those those people are contagious. We can keep them, you know, off the street and keep them from infecting others. Um, so I, I think that's that's really interesting. Uh, and then I assume as the days progress, you can see you're you, you're getting more and more certain, um, and you see it more and more in the body. Correct.
2: That's correct. So for our particular set of data, we saw the about day two or day three into symptoms was when we had the kind the of most uh, the highest sensitivity.
0: And how quickly does it taper off? And does, you know, does my body start feeling better at the same time, like the symptoms start disappearing? Yeah.
2: So some of the, some of the factors start to, uh, go back to normal pretty quick. So the heart rate measures seem to change back to baseline within sort of seven days for most people who have a, let's say a, a not particularly severe case of the illness. The one thing that's, uh, longer lasting is the changes in breathing rates they seem to take several weeks to resolve back to baseline so it looks like
1: yeah
2: even after you've cleared the body of the active infection there's probably some some sort of repair work that your lungs have to do to get your breathing back to normal
0: Well, guess it makes sense you keep hearing about this kind of massive attack on the lungs and like you know respirators were really important in the treatment early mm-hmm. on so I, I i guess that makes sense um Do you see this applying to other diseases beyond just COVID?
2: Yeah, so one of the things we were able to do with this survey was we did ask people about flu and also if they had been tested for other diseases. So there are things like strep throat or urinary tract infections, which might give you a fever or other fatigue symptoms. Um, What we saw is that uh, for flu, we had a similar pattern to what you saw in COVID, uh, but not quite as strong an effect on the breathing rate and the heart rate. Um, and then for other conditions, I think that's very much more specific to what the particular infection was. But even with flu, which is another upper respiratory infection, uh, sorry, lower respiratory infection, you can, see, uh, you can see the impact of the disease on your breathing and heart rate.
0: And, and you mentioned um, earlier in our conversation about, um, you know, a lot of this was originally done at population level and they got down to the individual level. Um, you know, for flu, I, even if you can't figure out on an individual basis, like whether you're sick or I'm sick, is it still useful to know whether this population is sick versus that population? That's, that's been a huge part of public health for uh, probably the last 20, 30
2: years. Uh, the CDC does a lot of flu monitoring by state and county level. Uh, and the idea of that is it, it helps them to allocate resources and also plan for the following year in terms of where to maybe beef up vaccination programs. Uh, so, yes, I mean, able to surface infectious illness at a population level is hugely valuable and certainly something we'd love to be able to do as, as a company.
1: This seems like such a new world for wearables and a new unlock. I mean, wearables have always been seen as more of a fitness tracking device or a wellness device, but this seems to be really going into the, the realm of health for wearables. What's sort of your hope of how you could introduce something or take this information from the study and give it to users? Like, What would be your ultimate goal to be able to support them with this uh, with this research?
2: Yeah, I think the way I'm thinking about this at the moment is that I'm hoping that over the next couple of months with COVID in particular, that there will be much better uh, testing, which is more point of care, where you don't have to go to a doctor. So and it'll be much cheaper and more accessible. So I think the ideal scenario is that our device uh, will provide people with early warning and they will then be able to follow it up with maybe a saliva test or a pinprick test which is able to kind of focus in more on, on a much more molecular level. And that, the combination of those will provide a much earlier warning system, get, you know, will keep people away from others while they're sick and also allow us to hopefully you know, return to a more normal life because you'll be able to get a much quicker turnaround whether you're healthy or not. So kind of, that's my, uh, I guess my belief is that wearables are, they have this great advantage of being 24-7, they're low cost, they're widely accessible. And if you then augment that with sort of more uh, biologically-based testing, we end up with, with the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, it seems like it could be a really incredible um, you know, stopgap before something like a vaccine to be able to help people kind of take the actions they need to stop the spread in their communities.
2: Absolutely, yeah. And I, unfortunately, I suspect even with the vaccine, we're, we're all going to face into maybe, you know, six months, a year where there'll be Still, uh, the, the vaccine won't, won't be spread out immediately. It might be, might be 100% effective. So there'll probably still be issues to deal with for a considerable period of time. So I do think it's worth investing in this area uh, for us as a company and for society long-term.
0: And if you look at flu vaccines, you know, they're great in terms of making sure you reduce the impact of the illness, uh, but they, they only, like, each vaccine only catches a certain number of flu strains. So I think there's a huge amount of potential there.
2: I think it was pretty interesting to look at the duration of the disease. And I think this is sort of what we've read about in the press as well. I mean, most people seem to have a pretty short, maybe three to seven days illness and it's not too severe. But there's a lot of people who have really long duration of symptoms. So we have a we kind of had a cutoff at 60 days, but there's people who've had even had more than 60 days duration of symptoms. So it's this is very weird disease where it seems to be like a little cluster which is all short, and then there's another cluster where it's got long term symptomology, um, which I think is pretty different to things like flu or strep throat or so on. So, yeah, I, I thought that was interesting.
0: And I'm curious, like for those people with, who are experiencing for those longer periods of time, have you got a chance to look at the like the physiological physiology they're going to, Like, in addition to reporting the symptoms and being in hospital, like do we see their body kind of acting? Strangely or crazy for that same period of time. I mean, we haven't looked
2: at great detail in those those kind of super long period uh, events, but we have looked at people. We did segment it by the people who were more severe, and they had a stronger response in the first couple of days. So there is potentially some evidence that what happens in the first few days might be predictive of how the long term severity of the disease goes. But there's certainly a lot of a lot more we need to dig into in that.
0: Uh, Connor, uh, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thanks, Connor.
2: Thank you.